You can find John chapter 5 on page uh, 1619 of the Church Bibles. So John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, thanks very much, Sarah, and good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church Tonsley, and uh, great to see you all here. Um, about this time last year, our church looked together at the first four chapters of John's Gospel. A lot's happened since then, uh, and a lot of you have made this your church home since then as well and would have missed that series. Uh, so today, as we start a new series on the next section in John, I thought I'd just mention that all of those sermons from last year in John's chapter 1 to 4 are all online, and it may be helpful to go back and uh, either uh, hear them for the first time or refresh your memory uh, as we kind of plough into the next section. Uh, I encourage you to have a listen because John really builds uh, as he goes through this book. Uh, back in chapter 1, John presents us with a really mind-bending description of, uh, of who this man is, Jesus of Nazareth. He is none less than God the Son, the Eternal. And for the rest of this gospel, uh, this biography, I suppose, of Jesus' life, John shows exactly what Jesus came to do, uh, what it means, and especially what it means for you and for I. And in his introduction, back at the start, in John 1, verse 4, uh, this is up on the screen, John claims, in him, this is Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He's not saying that Jesus was alive, he's not saying that Jesus was lively, um, in him was life. Life itself has its origin, it has its meaning all wrapped up uh, in some way in Jesus, now, John makes that big claim right up front in chapter 1, and then the, through the rest of his book, he shows how that's true. Um, like today, uh, like we've just read, this incredible moment in Jerusalem is one case study in who Jesus is as the giver of life and what that means for us. As we read about Jesus doing the incredibly miraculous here, doesn't it seem odd to you? Uh, he does this incredible thing, uh, and instead of everyone who's seeing it, who saw it sort of falling on their knees down before Jesus and saying, please give me eternal life, uh, it doesn't happen, does it? Uh, no one in the story does anything like that. They don't respond, perhaps. Uh, the crowds don't respond, as you might imagine. There's just silence. What do they do? 
Uh, at the moment, I'm uh, catching up pretty regularly with a guy who uh, isn't a believer in, he's not a believer in Jesus, uh, and we're reading through John's gospel together pretty slowly, uh, but along the way, chatting about all sorts of great things. One of the repeated topics uh, we chat to from time to time is what would it take for him to believe that Jesus is God the Son? Perhaps you've had conversations like this yourself, and what he'd say often is, well, if Jesus could prove it, I just want him to prove uh, in front of my own eyes, give me irrefutable evidence that he really is God the Son, that he's eternal. The problem with that, though, as I keep pointing out as we read through John, is that Jesus did that time and again. Uh, and he gave this evidence, and not only did people not believe, they hated him and, and eventually killed him. Turns out the problem is never the evidence. As we see in the story today and in the coming weeks in John 5 and beyond, Jesus' greatest miracle, uh, Jesus' greatest miracle, I don't think was healing this man. I don't think his greatest miracle was turning water to wine or walking on water or even raising the dead. I would argue uh, the greatest miracle that Jesus did, uh, the greatest miracle that Jesus still does, is to turn a human heart around. I take a life that ignores him, that discounts him, that hates him, and turn that heart into a heart that loves him, that wants to honour him as our Lord, as our King. I think Jesus' greatest miracle was help us go from not knowing or not believing that we need saving from our sins to praying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think that's his greatest miracle because I think there is nothing more impossible for us to do. We can't turn our own hearts towards God uh, off our own uh, back. And I think we probably all know if you try to do this, you certainly can't change someone else's heart. You can have the best arguments in the world. You might have uh, the best evidence to kind of present about Jesus' resurrection of the dead. You might be able to answer every question. But you can't change a heart, can you? That's only something God can do, and uh, he does do it. We just had a fantastic uh, three-week series here in the book of Acts, uh, and you can also catch up on that series online uh, if that's helpful for, if you missed it. We saw time again in that series that God goes to work changing lives, uh, changing lives into eternity. It's incredible how he does that. Uh, perhaps close to home, close to our own time, uh, late last year we heard and we celebrated as a church uh, the miracle of salvation in the lives of Mike and Pam and Laura and Ava. Uh, what a highlight that was of our church life to witness the miracle of lives changed by Jesus. Now, it's a miracle for every single person who follows Jesus, actually. Uh, every single person who follows Jesus. If you, if you think back uh, to, the, to your own story of coming to faith, uh, coming to trust Jesus for your salvation, uh, for some, it was a long process. For some, it was a moment. Uh, perhaps it was from childhood. Wherever it was, think back. Can you remember what your heart was like? Uh, if it was a long time ago, um, I think sometimes we forget or we kind of discount how hard our hearts once were towards Jesus. But then, by his Spirit, he made our hearts new. He made us new and he gave us life. So of all the miracles that Jesus does, of all the miracles that happen in our world... I would argue the biggest miracle of all, the most spectacular miracle in reality, is when a heart is changed to believe in Jesus for salvation. So I ask you to just kind of keep that idea in mind. You might disagree, that's fine, but keep that idea in mind as we have a look at this uh, story of Jesus healing this man, a man who's in a desperate and terrible situation, and to see what this sort of uncovers about Jesus and what it uncovers about us. Uh, in the late 1800s, it was becoming uh, quite trendy, uh, to be sceptical about the claims of the Bible, especially the historical claims of the Bible. Um, so in chapter 5 here, you read about uh, this pool uh, in Jerusalem, and it was quite trendy uh, for the sceptics uh, to point out that we haven't found this pool in Jerusalem. We, there's no evidence for it. No one could find it. 
And what's more, the skeptics would say, uh, the area near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, which was well known, that area, it's dry. Uh, there was not only no evidence that there was a pool, it was very unlikely, they thought, that there would be a pool. And so the arguments uh, from the skeptics was that this is all proof that whoever wrote this, jo- uh, this gospel, it wasn't the disciple John, it was some other guy later on just making stuff up. Don't take it too seriously as history. But of course, as has happened many times uh, throughout history, uh, the vocal skeptics were pretty embarrassed uh, when in 1888, archaeologists discovered near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, I'll, I'll quote, they discovered two pools lying north and south, surrounded by four covered colonnades in a rough trapezoid, with a fifth colonnade running, uh, separating the two pools. It turns out uh, John very much knew uh, what he was talking about as he describes this scene for us. It's hard to imagine, uh, for me, a, a more depressing and dire situation than what Jesus saw at this pool, isn't it? Have a look in verse 3. Uh, John tells us a great number. There's a multitude of people here. Uh, the, the blinds, the lame, the paralyzed, they're, they're lying around, perhaps huddled together under the shades of the colonnades uh, surrounding the pool. In your mind's eye, it's a really bleak and hopeless community of, of I think, really desperate people. So desperate for change in their lives, they, they hang out day by day just waiting for a miraculous healing to change them. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, which I always encourage, um, you'll notice verse 4 in your Bible is actually missing. Um, there's a footnote instead down the bottom. Uh, it's most likely, I think, that John didn't write verse 4. That's why it's a footnote. Uh, it was probably added in later by a scribe explaining a bit more uh, about what people believed about this pool. Uh, it makes a bit more sense for us as readers, perhaps. It seems there was a belief from time to time an angel of the Lord uh, would stir up the waters uh, and the first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured. That's what people seem to think. And that comment actually makes uh, sense of what the man says in verse 7, that he's always uh, too slow to be the first in the water. That's why he would say that. But uh, whether or not people actually got healed this way, I think it's an open question. Uh, I reckon it's more likely just some kind of superstitious hope. Um, Because in any case, the pool clearly wasn't that powerful to heal people if there was still a great multitude waiting to be healed. It wasn't helping that many people. If it did work, everyone would be better, wouldn't they? This really is a tragic scene, I think. A multitude of desperate people whose only hope for a better life was tied to bubbling gas coming up through the water, I think. Turns out, though, it's not their only hope, is it? Because along came Jesus. In the midst of this multitude uh, of people in great, great need, Jesus saw and he learned about uh, one of the more tragic cases among them. Uh, someone who had been sick for 38 years. 38 years. It's a, a lifetime of affliction, isn't it? Um, the translation we have uses the word invalid to describe this man. I think it's probably not the most helpful translation. It's not really a word we use much. Uh, other translations go with a more literal kind of sick man or weak man. Whether he was paralysed or partially paralysed or there was something else debilitating him, uh, we're not sure, but it's obvious from the details here, he couldn't move well, could he? He was largely bound to his bed and dependent on others. Jesus asks him a very strange question, doesn't he? Very strange. Jesus, Just remember, Jesus is brilliant. He's incredibly intelligent. And he's off the charts in emotional intelligence. There's no doubt about that. But here he meets a man who's been sick for 38 years, lying next to a pool that's believed to have uh, healing powers, and Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's crazy, isn't it? Can you imagine a paramedic arriving as someone is, you know, mid-heart attack, and the paramedic stops and says, do you want to get well? Of course! Why would you ask that? It seems so odd and so ridiculous. 
As is always the case when we come to something odd and, I think, confusing in the Bible, we always do well to stop and to reflect and think. Uh, and in this case, I think we should assume Jesus has a great reason for asking this. We just need to keep thinking and see if we can discover what that reason is. So, uh, what could it be? Let's, let's keep reading. Perhaps we might find out more. Verse 7, uh, uh, verse seven says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. And when the water is stirred, uh, when the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, perhaps this man is answering Jesus' question, saying, well, it's not for lack of trying. I do want to get well. I just, I just can't do it. I just haven't got anyone to help me. But he doesn't really answer Jesus' question, does he? He doesn't really answer the question. Now, it's possible the man's giving a bit of a grumpy, uh, grumpy answer to what seems like a very stupid question. Uh, perhaps he's even suggesting, well, maybe Jesus can stick around and give him a hand getting into the water next time. But what we know for sure is what the man doesn't say. He doesn't say, yes, Jesus, please heal me. Which is to say, this is not a man of you know, great faith. He doesn't ask to be healed, not directly, not boldly. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He had to find out later on uh, in verse 13. He had no idea. Jesus asking uh, if he wants to get well. well. Let's just start with the basics, I suppose. At least it tells us Jesus isn't going to heal someone uh, against their will. If this guy had said, what do you mean get well? I'm fine as I am. Leave me alone, please. Of course, Jesus, I don't think, would heal him against his will. Here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't come just to fix broken bodies. Jesus came to fix and do something about a desperate and hopeless spiritual situation. This question Jesus asks does seem to be a multi-layered one. Of course, this man physically wants to get better. Of course, Jesus is talking about that at one level. He's also talking about this man's spiritual health, I think. Because as Jesus later finds this man down in verse 14, that's the topic of conversation, isn't it? His spiritual health is what Jesus is concerned about later on. Do you want to get well? It's not just his physical health in mind. So one of the most damaging and uh, most difficult things that comes with our own sin uh, is that sin really does blind us. It can make us unaware of how spiritually unwell we even are, uh, how far we are from being truly alive, and how blind, we, uh, how blind we can be to how far short of God's glory we fall. Now, that's true of Christians to some extent. Uh, we very much live with the effects of our blindness to our real uh, need, and I think we do live with ignorance to just how weighty our sin can be often. So Christians really ought to reflect and confront whether we really do want Jesus to fix or to heal us, our whole heart, not just parts of our lives. I think as Christians, we can be reluctant, can't we, to let Jesus really change us and grow us uh, in this way or in that way. We can sometimes want to just hold on to areas of sin in our life and not let Jesus heal that, to fix it. For example, it may be that some find ourselves not wanting to pray, uh, Lord, please help me be more generous. Please heal me of my greed and uh, the security I try and find in money and, uh, and finances. Please help me joyfully give more away. That can be a hard, hard prayer. Or, Lord Jesus, please help me be more forgiving. Please heal me of my tendency to sort of bear grudges and, and wanting to make others pay. Do we want to be well? Uh, this reluctance to be healed is, I think, especially true for those who haven't accepted that Jesus is the Lord of their lives. Because often it involves not realising how desperate and hopeless uh, we are, spiritually speaking. Without Jesus healing us, without him forgiving us, uh, giving us life his way, which is the best way, everyone's default before coming to Jesus is wanting to do life our way, 
But the spiritual reality of that is it's crippling. It cripples us. It makes us blind to the true reality of the universe, that God really rules. It means we're unable to enjoy the life uh, that we should have with him as our creator. Do you want to get well? I think this question is asked not just for the man, uh, but for John to record and for us to reflect on as Jesus' disciples. Uh, Perhaps first, those for those who aren't followers of Jesus, this is a question that really matters. Do you want your spiritual life healed? Do you recognise at the deepest level of who you are, you are in need? Jesus can heal you. For those who do follow Jesus already, uh, this question leads us, I think, to reflect honestly Do we want to put our life more fully in Jesus' hands? Do we want him to heal us of our need to be in control all the time? Do we want him to heal us of our need to uh, harbour grievances? Do we want him to heal us from a lukewarm approach to being his disciple? Do we want him to heal us from our need to be liked or admired by other people? Uh, Jesus can do that, and he will do that, But we've got to be willing and to not be satisfied lying on our mats, as it were, in a less than alive way. Well, in verse 8, as uh, Jesus speaks, it's very simple, isn't it? He just tells the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And simply by speaking, giving that command, he restores this man instantly. It's amazing to think, isn't it, about sort of what this man's body would have been like? I think about sort of the before and after, before Jesus spoke those words and after Jesus spoke those words. It's extraordinary, just the biology, the physiology of it all. Uh, Many of you will have had a broken arm or leg before. Um, I remember when I was a kid, one of my brothers, uh, he broke his leg riding a motorbike into a fence. It was pretty funny, uh, for for me at least. Um, Anyway, he had his leg in a full cast for about 12 weeks, uh, 10 to 12 weeks, something like that. Uh, when the cast came off, I still remember it vividly. It was kind of funny how different his two legs looked. Maybe you've seen this or had experience yourself. Uh, one leg, healthy, muscular, you know, seen some sun that's been doing all the work, looking good. Uh, the other leg was wide and pasty and wasted away and weak. It's hilarious for me. <laughs> Twelve weeks, doesn't take long. Twelve weeks, muscles, ligaments, even blood flow, circulation can be affected. I was speaking to someone this morning uh, about a physio who was looking at someone who hadn't been out of bed really for eight weeks and saying, I have to teach them to walk again. Eight weeks? Try 38 years. Imagine what it would do to your muscles, uh, to your circulation, your ligaments, your tendons, even your balance, perhaps your bone structures, I don't know. For the physios here, imagine the treatment plan you've got to roll out. Where do you even start with someone like this after lying down for 38 years? How How do you treat this person? But here he is. After Jesus' words, instantly better. He can walk. And it seems that telling him to pick up his mat, it's kind of like the icing on the being healed cake. Um, This man doesn't sort of stumble and limp away, pausing for breath every three steps. He carries his own bed home. He's fine. He's given life. It's extraordinary. This is no small thing that Jesus does. It's not a party trick. He does it instantly, and he does it simply, powerfully, by speaking words. Which reminds us of how John introduced Jesus right back in chapter 1, right back at the start of this gospel. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. That is the eternal logos, if you remember back at the sermons from last year. Jesus, the Word, made all things. Everything in the universe was made by God the Son. The powerful Word of God who creates, who gives life, he speaks... And it is so. It's extraordinary. 
To heal this man in this way is nothing short of demonstrating, giving evidence that Jesus is the one who gives life and full life. Every day you wake up, uh, every breath that you take, every time your heart beats, it's given to you by Jesus. He kindly sustains each life every second. It's wonderful. But at the back of our minds, is kind of perhaps that question, why this man? Why does he get special treatment? Why not everyone at the pool? If Jesus can do it so easily, why not everyone? Why not me? Why not the person in my life who I care about who needs this miracle? It's true, isn't it? Jesus didn't heal everyone he came across. Uh, it's not like everyone in the world during his ministry days he, he healed. And he doesn't promise that now either to his people. He doesn't promise uh, or guarantee our healing from sickness. I mean, at some point, this man who he healed, uh, extraordinary though it is, this man got old, or perhaps he died of some other sickness. He died eventually, didn't he? And so too will we all. Of all the miracles we may hear about or experience, the extraordinary healings we might uh, come across in the Bible or in our world today, ultimately, it's the kindness of God that just simply extends our mortal lives just a little further. Which is really the story of each and every day Jesus gives us, isn't it? He kindly extends our life, extends our life, extends our life. But far, far more than that, he promises to give us life beyond our grave if we go to him to be well. So without really knowing the mind of Jesus, why he heals this man and why he doesn't do that for others, we do know the heart of Jesus, don't we? He is kind, he is caring, he very much loves his people and so if you have that question you're sort of struggling with that, my encouragement is to don't give up praying uh, for those who do need his healing hand. Keep trusting that he can deliver us and extend our lives and keep trusting our whole lives to him and not just for this life, but for eternity as well. So I don't know exactly why Jesus chose this man to heal and not others, although you know, perhaps he did heal others there. John just didn't choose to tell us. John tells us Jesus healed countless people. He just didn't record them all. There may be a few reasons, though, that Jesus did choose this particular man. Uh, first, Jesus is demonstrating that the time of God's salvation, that's been long promised, long awaited, it's finally here. In Isaiah 35, there's a verse I'll get uh, put on the screen, thanks. In Isaiah 35, written hundreds of years before Jesus, um, Isaiah talked about a coming time of salvation that would change everything. And in that time, the blind will see, the lame will leap like a deer. It's long awaited and a very famous passage in mind. Jesus very deliberately goes and heals someone who is lame. And John will then go and feature in chapter 9 the healing of a blind man. Uh, so choosing to heal a, a lame man in chapter 5 and a blind man later, I think is first John's way of showing us Jesus has come and he's brought God's salvation with him. On top of that, it's striking to me that this man isn't really that deserving of Jesus' help, if we can put it that way. Yes, he's had a bad, bad run and uh, you feel very sorry for him, of course, but... He's just not a great model of thoughtful, uh, faithful devotion. Um, look at how he's represented in this story. He doesn't even know it's Jesus. He doesn't really ask Jesus for help. He doesn't even seem to try that hard to find out who it was that healed him. Um, and then when he does find out, the first thing he does is going to report to people who hate Jesus and want to kill him. He's not presented in the best light here, is he, this man? And yet, Jesus chooses to heal him. It's grace, isn't it? It's grace, receiving the kindness and favour of Jesus without doing anything at all to deserve it. And if it's true what I said earlier, that those without Jesus are in just a hopeless spiritual state, 
uh, just as hopeless as this man is uh, physically, if that's true, then the way that Jesus uh, helps and, sh- and heals this helpless man for no reason that we can tell, other than his kindness and love, which shows we can say the same thing with gratitude and thankfulness when Christ gives each one of us life out of grace alone, not because we're somehow some models of faithfulness or anything like that. It's grace that Jesus heals us with. Uh, he really is a wonderful saviour, isn't he? And he really does give wonderful life. He delivers us from a, spiritual desperate, a spiritually desperate state, self-absorbed, insecure, lost, without a foundation, without meaning, without hope. Jesus saves us from all of that and gives the gift of being alive spiritually now and into eternity. Then at the end of verse 9, we find out uh, a small detail which has big implications. This happened on the Sabbath day. That kicks off a massive fight between Jesus and the, the Jewish leaders. Um, who, the Jewish leaders were very rigidly, uh, not, they didn't just hold to the law of Moses to try and keep the Sabbath day holy uh, by not working on it. That was important. Um, but they, the leaders also very sternly made sure no one else would do anything even close to something resembling work. I mean, carrying a mattress home after not being able to walk for 38 years, it's not exactly this guy's day job, is it? He's not really working in the way we sort of understand work. And it's not Moses who said he can't carry a mattress on the Sabbath day. It's the teaching of the Jewish leaders. Now think about this. The man who Jesus saw had been lying there for 38 years. He could have waited one more day. He knew it was the Sabbath. He could have waited one more day. What's one more day for this guy? It's, he, he could last another day. So I don't know this for sure, but I think Jesus did this on purpose on the Sabbath. I think it's a very deliberate move. Healing this man publicly, obviously, and telling him to carry his mat home, I think Jesus did very intentionally on the Sabbath to spark what happens next, which is a massive debate about who Jesus is. We're going to be diving uh, much more into that in the coming weeks as we push on in uh, the rest of chapter 5. We'll see Jesus making some incredible claims about who he is. Uh, first up, that he's a co-worker with God and equal with God. Extraordinary. In verse 22, uh, if you flick over your page, you see that uh, God the Father has entrusted all judgment to Jesus. All judgment rests with Jesus. So Jesus first defends himself uh, healing on the Sabbath because, of what he's, because he's doing the same work as his Father. Um, he's upholding the universe uh, just like the Father does. More on that next week. But he also makes clear that he himself will be the judge of every one of us. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who sustains our life. And at the end of our life, he is the judge that we will stand before. So having that in mind uh, helps us with verses 10 to 15. I think um, in these verses, the Jewish leaders are a great case study in missing the point entirely, aren't they? Um, They see a man who couldn't walk for like four decades walking, and they say, you're doing it wrong. Like, what's wrong with these people? Can you imagine a scientist sort of rushing in out of the lab into the office saying, I've done it. I've just found the cure for all cancer. It's amazing. But their colleagues just look at them blankly and say, I don't think those are the correct safety glasses you're wearing. I'm going to have to get you to sign up for the remedial seminar in occupational health and safety. Like, are you serious? I've just discovered a cure for cancer. How can you focus on that? Missing the point. Of course, we can miss the point uh, so much as well, can't we? Here we are following the Lord of the universe. He's given us free forgiveness for all our sins. He's conquered death. He's conquered evil. He will rightly and kindly bring justice to our world. He's given us an eternal inheritance that will not perish, spoil or fade. 
And yet we get so caught up in the little things that don't really matter that much, don't we? Distracted by how much money we have or don't have, how other people will think about us, how we look. They're all important things in their proper place, but hardly worth focusing on too much, are they? Compared to the reality of being people of Jesus, we can miss the point that he is the giver of life and get sort of distracted by those other things. As Jesus finds this man he healed in verse 14, he says something that first sounds very insensitive, it does sound harsh. Uh, He says, see you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. What could be worse? What could be worse than being sick and confined to bed for 38 years? Of all the problems we face, of all the suffering or discomfort we endure, there is something far worse than it all. It's being on the wrong side of Jesus on the day of judgment. Everything else is far, far less important. Not unimportant. But being right with Jesus is so critically, so critically important, it puts everything else into the shade. Jesus isn't threatening the man here uh, as much as he is, I think, kindly warning him. He's got his physical health back. That's great. That's good. But that's nothing if he doesn't get his spiritual life sorted out as well. If he doesn't turn away from his sin and turn to Jesus as the one who saves us from our sin and who leads us to godly living, it'll be for naught. Because on the day that we meet Jesus, that will be the only thing that matters. Have we repented? Have we turned away from our sin, doing life on our terms? Have we turned towards Jesus, seeking to do life on his terms and seeking to trust that his righteousness will make us right with him on the day he judges us? That's the most important thing we can all be crystal clear on. So as we wrap up here today, um, and we'll dive more, far more into the details in the coming week of what this all means, for now, I encourage you to take great heart uh, in the kindness and the power of our Saviour Jesus, who gives us life, And he gives us assurance on the day of judgment that those who trust in him have absolutely nothing to fear. Will you join me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much that you give us every breath. You give us life itself and you give us everything that is good. Thank you that you continue to sustain us day by day in this life and even more so uh, that by your death you have guaranteed a life that lasts into eternity. Please uh, refresh our heart and uh, help us hold dearly to the truth of who you are as the one who gives life. And so please help each one of us have hearts that are open uh, and willing to be made fully well, continue being transformed by you, making us alive, living your way and living for your glory. Amen.